okay, so today's daf is Kafav and Masechet Erovin. We are on um, about 18 lines from the bottom of Kafav Amud Alev, where we left off yesterday. And Amar Rabbi Eli Shamati, Rabbi Eliezer, I feel a bit cool because Rabbi Eli had said that I heard some unusual teachings. One was that even Beit Kur, even an area of not just two sa'ah, but 30 sa'ah, is a, you could still carry in such a couple So up till now, we've always been learning that it has to, that the maximum is a two sa'ah area of, um, uh, of space that can be enclosed, non for, not for residential purposes, and you can still carry in there. But he said, I heard from Rabbi Eliezer that even Beit Kur, even, uh, even a, a 15 times that, even 30, our Mishnah doesn't follow Hananiah, right? Well, first of all, our, our entire Gemara up till now hasn't followed this either because it doesn't say that you're allowed to have Beit Kur. It says you're only allowed to have, um, you're only allowed to have uh, uh, Tusa. But at the end of the Mishnah, it brought Rabbi Eliezer was, said, we're going to see that, uh, sorry, Rabbi Eli said two halachot that he learned from Rabbi Eliezer that we're gonna, the, the Gemara is going to discuss. But this was one of them. That he said, no, it could be a much bigger area. So, uh, so he said, goes even further. He said, it could even be 40 sa'ah. Now, a kur is 30 sa'ah. Right? So, we, so that's already larger. But 40 sa'ah, and we're not talking about 40 sa'ah, we're talking about of the grain that would be planted there, right? That's, that's what it's talking about. It's a much, much larger amount than two se'ah, obviously. That's 20 times larger of a field that could be enclosed, not for residential purposes. And they both are learning this from the same pasuk, because it says in this story of Yishayahu going to visit Chizkiah when he was sick in Rechim Bet, and in the, in the text it says, that we read it says, Lo Chatzer atichona to the outer to the middle courtyard, but ketiv va'ir v'kavin chatzer. It's a case of kriuktiv. Like sometimes you have in the Torah, actually in this week's parasha, and the curses of the Torah. Sometimes you'll have a word that's written one way, but we don't read it that way. So there's a kriuktiv also in Yeshayahu in, in Sefer Melachim that it says the word ha'ir, but it, but it's but we read it as chatzer, which is a big difference. Ir is city, chatzer is courtyard. So it, we read it as he goes, to, he, he didn't yet reach, he barely reached the middle courtyard, but it actually says he barely reached the middle city, okay? Which implies that what which tells you that the courtyards of the kings, these places that they would go for a stroll were as large as a, medium, as a city, right? They're as large as a medium-sized city. But the point is that therefore one is saying, 30, uh, that's 30 se'ah of area of grain uh, planting. The other one says, no, it's 40 se'ah of grain planting area. But the point is that they're saying, you see that it's called a chatzer. It's called a, um, it's called an enclosed area, even though it's very, very large. So we should be able to extend the concept of an enclosed area, even if it's not for residential purposes, to be even larger than two se'ah. But this, this story, they're just using it as a way to learn it from the text. They're not saying it's, they're not making a literally saying that that's what's going on in the pasuk. They're just saying that it's called the chatzer, even though it's very, very large. So we should also be able to call another enclosure chatzer, even though it's very, very large. Now in that story, Yishayahu was going to visit Chizkiah because Chizkiah was sick. And actually Yishayahu came and told Chizkiah, you're going to die, so you don't get your affairs in order, it's all over. And then, as, and then Chizkiah prayed, and, and, and it's saying, as soon as Yishayahu got out of the palace, he wasn't even in the middle 
courtyard yet, and Hashem already told him, no, go back and tell him that I accepted his prayer, and he get, he's getting more time. So that's, that's what it's talking about. So, so first of all, what is the machloket here between Hananiah and Rabbi Eli that heard from Rabbi Eliezer? Is it 30 or 40? So, so the, the old, in other words, they're basically saying the same thing. They're saying that a, a, an area as large as a city could be defined still as a chatzir, an enclosed a courtyard. And the question is, is that 30 sa'av space or 40 sa'av? But they're both agreeing that it's much, much more than the two sa'av that everyone else says. Now the halakha is the two sa'av. We don't follow these opinions, but it's interesting that they both are making a much bigger area. What was Yishayah doing in that courtyard? Why was he hanging out in the, in the courtyard of, Yish, uh, of, of Chizkiyahu? If you read the text, it sounds like he was just going home. He wasn't really, uh, he wasn't doing anything. But it says, no, he was doing something because it says that since Chizkiyahu was sick, Yishayahu went to and he made a yeshiva. He got some students to, or some Tamil Chachamim to learn outside the door of the palace as a zechut that, you know, maybe Chizkiyahu would be better. And Rashi says that then the Malach HaMavet or the Satan will come and see people learning and say, okay, I'm not going to bother Chizkiyahu because it's learning and it's not going to interrupt the learning. And therefore, it's going to like keep Chizkiyahu alive. Which we can derive from this. That if a Tamil Chacham becomes sick, we should put people to learn outside the room uh, where he's sick because that way, um, uh, that way the Malacham of it will, will, not bother him, will not bother him. However, but it's not really true. We can't make a broad conclusion from what Ishayahu did because because actually maybe the Satan will even be um, more enticed by that. In other words, it's like you're, you're giving him a challenge. It's like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're saying to the Satan, you're not going to be able to come in here and he'll be like, I'll find a way, you know. So you're, you, you don't want to go head to head with the Malach so maybe it's even worse. Or, or if you want to look at it in even in terms that are maybe psychological terms, metaphoric terms, you could say that a person who does something like that, maybe they feel overconfident. Because they say, oh, it's okay, and nothing's going to happen to me because I have learning going on here, and we're, we're reading Nishmat Kol Chai such and such times, and we're reading this, and we're doing that, and therefore nothing, no harm is going to come to me. So it gives a person like a false sense of security, maybe, if they have things going on, instead of, in the case of Chizkiah, he actually did Teshuvah, or he prayed, and like that was the right thing to do, instead of the false security that could come from anything else. Maybe that's what it means. But anyway, we're going to learn a lot more about this actually also in the sixth parak, which really talks mainly about Erovei Chatzerot um, and the details of that. But basically, as we've seen, Erovei Chatzerot was done that you have multiple houses opening to one courtyard and the, and the typical procedure was that you would go to each resident and you would collect from each resident some food, and then you would put all this food together, and you would put the food, bread usually, you would take bread from each uh, family, and you would keep it all together, unified, in one of the houses, and say, we're all one big family, we're all sharing food, okay? And then they would usually eat it, like from Sadash Lishit or something like that, on, uh, on Shabbat. But the, the, this was what was done on a, on a weekly basis in these more, you know, informal communities. Nowadays, like I was saying, when they make Yorvei Chatzot, they usually do it for the whole year. They take a box of matzah. They don't, they don't do it every week. But, the, um, but what happens if one of the members didn't participate, so he wasn't included, and they didn't include him? Right? The way that the, it's done nowadays, they don't ask your permission, can you be in the Eruv HaChatzot? What they do is they do a thing called Zikui, that they take the Eruv and they give it to a third party and they say, receive this as a gift on my behalf for everyone. And you can transfer the ownership to everyone because it's a Zikut to be part of the Eruv and they don't ask your permission. But in, the, in those cases, they used to participate actively. So if the person doesn't come and, and they forgot to be part of the Eruv, so the problem is that it prohibits every, everyone from using the Chatzir because instead of being united as one entity, now there's a multiple, multiplicity 
multiplicity because there's one guy who's not included and everyone else who is. Let's say nine people are, are you know, made an Erev Chatzot and the one guy is a second party. So he's going to prohibit everyone. So it says what happens is he can say, I don't want any rights to the Chatzot. He could say, I withdraw from the Chatzot officially so that you guys can use it. And so he doesn't prohibit anybody else from using the chatzer, that he's allowed to do. But what he, <clears throat> but the question is, what about from his house, ha- what if, the, so he can't bring things in and out of his house now, into the chatzer, he's not allowed. But what about if other people want to come bring things in and out of his house? In other words, is his house like off limits, it's a separate reshut, but he's just not allowed to go in and out because he relinquished his rights, but now it's like his house belongs to everyone else. It's like give up his house. Or, no, he, he's not allowed to bring things in, in and out, and neither is anybody else, because his house is just like now sealed off from everything else, so to speak. It can't be involved. That, so Rabbi Eli was saying that if he declares, if he nullifies what's called bitul rishut, he nullifies his right to the chatzir, that still allows other people to take things in and out of his house. It's just that he gave up his right to do it. Okay, that's what he said. Now, we learned in the Mishnah, didn't we learn in the Mishnah that if a person makes bitul rishut, if, and this is done in a case where the person either didn't want to participate in the Eruv or for whatever reason, maybe he's just not a nice person, or maybe he didn't want to give any of his bread, he couldn't afford it, or maybe, uh, maybe he wasn't around and he, and, and he came in and it was already Shabbat. Shabbat already started. So he can do bitul rishut. He can give up his, uh, his, his portion. So it says, Beto lo Nobody's allowed to bring anything in and out of his house for the duration of Shabbat because that means that his house is now defined as a separate entity, which is like sealed off from everything else. So, so whereas Rabbi Eli is saying, no, other people could bring things in and out of his house. So why does it say that? It says, no it's really a machloket between Rabbi Eliezer and the rabbis because Rabbi Eli was reporting that in the name of Rabbi Eliezer that according to Rabbi Eliezer a person who relinquishes their right to use the chatzir only relinquishes their right but their house is still fair game for everyone else if they want to bring things in and out of his house on Shabbat they're allowed to it's only he's not allowed to the Chachamim said no when you relinquish your right you're also saying my house is like as if there's like yellow tape or police tape around it and you can't go in nothing go in and out okay? and it says Okay, if you're going to look into this, basically, and the Gemara is going to ask, why does he say this? If you're going to say, like, so meaning that according to Rabbi Eliezer, when a person nullifies his rights to the chatzir, he's also nullifying his rights to his house. In other words, he's saying, you, you guys, my house belongs to you. He's saying, I'm just a guest here of you. My house also belongs to you. So therefore, the other people in the chatzir can bring things in and out of his house. But according to the rabbis, when he nullifies his right to the chatzir, he's just saying, I withdraw from any use of the courtyard. But I'm in my own house. My house is now a separate reshut. It's just detached from everyone else's because I'm not going to take anything in and out of my house. But nobody else can take anything in and out of his house either then. Okay, that's the, that's the machloket. So the Gemara says, Pshita, that's obvious. Why does he say, say, Kishitim Tilamar? If you're going to say that it's, that, uh, you know, this, this approach of Rabbi Eliezer versus the Chachamim. What do you mean, if you're going to say? That, that, that is the, that is the explanation. So, that this extra statement of, of, uh, uh, that he added, that Rav Sheshet added, okay, was, 
only for a case where there are five people who are in one chatzev, and one person didn't participate. There's a further reason why Rav Sheshet gave his explanation. In other words, it's not like he wasn't just explaining to you the basic mechanism, because that's obvious, that if the person, if, according to Rabbi Eliezer, when you give up your rights to the chatzev, you're giving your house up to everybody else, basically. And according to the chachamim, no, you're just giving your right to use the chatzev. So what is the, why did he have to say Kishetim Telamar? If you really look into it, this, what, do you, what do you mean if you really look into it? What, what is he adding? He's adding that, that there's another difference, which is that if, according to Rabbi Eliezer, okay, he doesn't have to say, let's say there are five pe- other people besides him. He doesn't have to say, Bobby, I, I, I'm Mivatel Marishu to Bobby and Johnny and, uh, and Chuck and whoever else is uh, people, right? He doesn't have to say for each and every person. Whereas according to Chachamim, Right? According to the Chachamim, you would have to, he would have to be um, mevatel uh, to each and every individual. Okay? To each and every individual. Because according to the Chachamim, he's, withdraw, he's withdrawing his claim from each and every individual. And according to Rabbi Eliezer, he's just saying, my house belongs to the, uh, belongs to the group. Okay? Now, Rashi explains here in a little more detail. He says, he says, why do we have to look into, he says, why did he say, look into their machloket to understand? He says, that, that, Rashi explains. A person who gives up his reshut gives generously. So he gives up his whole house. He's like, my house is yours. Right? It's, 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 it's all yours. Right? We don't say that only what he said. He said, I'm mevatel my rights to the chatzer. We don't say, oh, only the chatzer he was giving. No, we say, no, ba'ayin yafa. He's generous. He means he's giving his house up to everybody and therefore they can carry things in and out of his house. And therefore, we can learn from that, that if he's mevatel his rashut to even one person, he really means to everybody. Right? He's the most generous. And we don't say that we only restrict it. He went over to one of the guys and said, I give you my rishut, my, my rights. He means to everybody. He doesn't just mean to that one guy. Whereas the rabbis say, no, we take the most restrictive and limited interpretation. Meaning we take the most limited. So if he only said, I'm giving up my rights to the chatzer, that means I'm keeping my rights to my house. And if he only said to one guy, I'm giving you my rights, he only meant to that guy. So we have to say to each and every guy, the kulana and everybody else won't be able to use it. Okay, so um, so the, uh, the the point is that, um, and then he goes on to another case. But the main point here is that whether we interpret the words broadly or we interp- interpret them in a limited way, and if and so according to Rabbi Eliezer, what what Rabbi Shesha was saying is look into what they're saying here because there's something more here. It's a question of whether we interpret the words as generously as possible or as limited as possible, and. And keman as la and so therefore we can extend this and say, whose opinion is reflected in the following brayta? If there are five people in one chater, man, and one of them forgot to make the eruv, when he does bitulushut, he doesn't have to include each and every person. Who is that opinion? Keman right? That's Rabbi Eliezer's opinion that we take his nullification of rights as broadly as possible. Okay, Rav Kanamat Neachi. 
Rav Kana had this version that we just gave, but Rav Tavyomi, Matniachi, Rav Tavyomi had a different uh, version of this, that, it wa- that this comment of Rav Sheshet was actually explaining this Braita, not about our Mishnah, was explaining the Braita. That the original question, that right in our version, they were explaining the Mishnah first, or explaining Rabbi Eli's opinion that was in the Mishnah. In this version, they were explaining the Braita. The Braita said, that if you have that if a person gives up his rishut, he doesn't have to give it to, each, to explicitly say each and every person. And they asked, "Keman, whose opinion is that?" Keman, Right. In other words, it's the same conclusion that Rabbi Eliezer is the one that says that when somebody says, "I'm giving up my rights," he gives up everything, he gives up his house, and he gives it to everyone, everyone but himself. What if you flip the script here? Because let's say, according to Rabbi Eliezer, we assume the most generous interpretation of the words, right? So what if, what if I say, no, I'm only mevatel my rights to the chater, I'm not mevatel my house. Will that have an effect? Or according to the rabbis, let's say the guy says, I am nullifying my rights to my house also. Or let's say according to Rabbi Eliezer, the guy says, no, I only want this guy to be able to uh, have my rights, not everyone else, right? Or, what if he, or, or according to the rabbis, what if the person says, I want everyone to have my rights? Does he still have to mention each and every person? The question is, each position is saying what we assume about what a person's intention, what a person's intention is. It, what if they explicitly say the opposite of that? Does it mean that the rabbis and Rabbi Eliezer are saying that objectively a person who says this means the most limited thing or the most generous thing? Or they're saying, no, that's our assumption. But if the person clarifies, we'll take the clarification. So that, now he's going to explain it. So he says like this. So it says, Tamad Rabbi Eliezer, Mishub, the Kazav, Hamivatel, Rishut Chatzero, Rishut Peto, Bitel. Rabbi Eliezer generally maintains that if a person gives up his rights to the Chatzero, he's also giving up his rights to his own house. But this guy is saying, no, I don't want to. In other words, Rabbi Eliezer is making an assumption and the guy is saying, I don't want to give up my house. So maybe we should take that into account. Or maybe Rabbi Eliezer is saying, objectively, a person who gives up the rights to the Chatzero, a person doesn't live in a house where he doesn't have rights to the area right outside the house. He's not going to live in a house like that. We're up to the front door. It's not his. He's not going to live there. So, and he doesn't have the power to say, I don't give up my house. His words won't have any meaning. In other words, is Rabbi Eliezer saying, when a person says, I give up my rights to the chatzer, we assume he's giving up his rights to the house. Is that just an assumption? It's just an assumption. But if you say, no, I don't want to give up my rights to my house, we would take it. Or we're saying, no, it's a, a person who gives up their rights to the chatzar automatically, by definition, is giving up the rights to the house. And you can't say anything other than that. Right? Meaning, is Rabbi Eliezer saying that's the objective meaning of your words. It doesn't matter what your intention is. And similarly, the Rabbanan, Yamar Maftilna, Maitama, the Rabbanan, Mishum, the Kasavan, the Roshut Chatzero, Roshut Betel, Lobitel, Fayamar Maftilna. Same thing we can ask on the rabbis. The rabbis generally say that if a person gives up the rights to the chatzar, he's not sacrificing his rights to his house. But this guy's saying he wants to give up the rights to his house. So why can't he give up the rights to his house to him? The difference would be that if you give up the rights to your house, at least the other people in the chatzar can bring things in and out of your house. 
right? Oh, Dilma, Tama, the Rabbanan Mishum de Lavid in Ishtemisalek Nafshelegamri, me bait the Hatser, Fahaveki Orech Legabayu. Or maybe what the rabbis are saying is that it's not normal for a person to completely give up their rights to their Hatser and their house and to become a guest of everybody else. Basically, he's saying, I'm a guest, I'm living in, your, in everyone else's house. Or maybe, and maybe therefore a person who, can't, who says I'm giving up my house and my rights to the chatzer, according to the rabbis, is just a loony. He's just crazy, right? And it, and it wouldn't count, right? And it, it wouldn't count at all. So, so the answer that was given, this was a question that Rav Papa asked Abaye, and by answered that in a case where the person makes their intention explicit and says, I, even according to Rabbi Eliezer, if the person says, no, I don't give up my rights to my house, he's just assuming the person intends to do that. But if they explicitly say otherwise, we take that as they're saying otherwise. And, if, and the rabbis would agree that if the person said, I'm giving up my rights to the chatzer and also my rights to the house, that allows everyone to go in and out of his house and to use his, you know, to, to bring things in and out of that person's house. And he's like a, a guest of theirs now. He's allowed to do that. It's just that the rabbis and Rabbi, Yehud and, and Rabbi Eli are arguing about what do we assume, right? Or Rabbi Eliezer. What do we assume is the meaning of a person's statement? But if they clarify it one way or the other, we take the clarification and that will define the parameters of what happens, right? And then he says, This was another thing that Rabbi Eli said that he heard from Rabbi Eliezer, that you can use this arkablin as maror and pesach. My arkablin, what is this? Amarish lakish. So Rashi says that this is like a vine that grows around a palm tree and they would, and I guess it was a very bitter type of a thing and they would sometimes take it and eat it and it could be used according to that for, um, for purposes of, uh, of Maror. So that's a Hadran Alach Osin Pasin. That's a, nothing at all. It was just another interesting teaching because Rabbi Eli said that there were two Statements that he heard from Rabbi Eliezer that were unusual, but he could not find any other student of Rabbi Eliezer who had ever heard anything like it. One of them had to do with Eruv, and the other uh, one of them was about uh, the size of the. Uh, of, of, he had first mentioned that one of the, you know, about the size of the chatzir, the size of the thing, and then he mentioned these other two alachot about the person who nullifies his uh, domain, and also about the person who about the pesach. He just mentioned it because he couldn't find anybody else to corroborate it. Now we can go a little bit further because we're early still, and also this is we're out of the woods of masechet eruvin. I mean, I, we, we can't, the, these first two parakim are the hardest part. The rest of it is, you know, look, there's no Gemara that's easy all the way through and there's going to be hard parts, but I'm saying like the toughest part with all the diagrams is, is mostly over. So we, we, we can go a little faster too. This is the third parak. It says, A person can make Eruv, and this is talking about Eruv Techumin. Not Eruv Chatzerot, according to most. According to Rashi, you can make Eruv Chatzerot out of any kind of food also. But according to most, Eruv Chatzerot, they have to use bread. But Shitufei Mavuot, unifying the Mavui, and Eruv Chumin, to extend the boundary on Shabbat, you're allowed to use anything. And so, any edible food. And so, like, what does Eruv Chumin is that... Rabbinically, you're not allowed to go more than 2,000 damot outside of the place that you reside for Shabbat. Now, the place you reside is defined as your whole, is your whole city. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, not just your house. But if a person wanted, let's say, to, let's say they heard that a great speaker is coming to a shul that's in the town over and it's, 
and they and they won't and it's beyond the tchum. So what they it's usually only done. But the halacha is we only make eruv tchumin ledvar mitzvah. Actually, we don't just do it for fun. It has to be for mitzvah. So or let's say your parents you want to go see them and they're at tchum mitzvah. So what do you do? You you have to put you can you have two options. One is you can go to the edge of two thousand amot from your city, like nineteen hundred ninety nine amot, and start Shabbat there and say this is my makom, this is my place that I'm starting Shabbat. You could do that. The other possibility is that you could put food on that spot. You don't have to stay there till Shabbat starts. You put food there from before Shabbat. That's your Eovet Chumin. And you're saying symbolically, this is where I'm spending Shabbat. Then you go back to your house. Of course, you eat and sleep in your house. And then when you come in the morning, you're allowed to go 20, um, 2,000 amot further than that food that you left. Okay? Now, the problem is you can't, you can't, what? But we'll get to that. Don't ask every question. Leave the Gemara to ask those questions. Yeah, but the, but the, but if you go, if you go in the other direction, you can't go even one step in the other direction out of your town now, because you, you because you restricted. In other words, you only get one direction. So if you decide to go two thousand amot to the west of your town, you can go one step to the east of the town. You can go to the town and you can go to the Erukumin. You can right. You're stretching it, but you still only have two thousand amot. Now there's a whole discussion. Among the Rishonim, if there is any Tchum Min HaTorah, some Rishonim, some of the Rishonim maintain that there is such a thing as Tchum Min HaTorah, also a longer Tchum, not 2,000 Amot. Some people say, no, the whole concept of Tchum Min is only the Rabbanan. The Ramban actually says there is a level of Tchum that is the Horaita, but this is talking about the Rabbinic Tchum, and that's why you're allowed to extend it, meaning a very far distance, a further distance, might actually be an Isur de Horaita to go outside the Tchum. This Isur of Tchum from the fact that the rabbis can fix it by telling you to put food at a spot, you could tell it's only a rabbinic law because they wouldn't be able to play around with a delraita and, and in that way. Now you can use any kind of food to make that eruvet chumin. In fact, when when I lived in a neighborhood where there was a problem, there was a power plant right in the middle of the right in the middle of the um, uh, of the community. So it actually broke the residential area enough that they had to have an eruv tchumin just in order to have services, like to have the minyan. And we used to have a minyan in someone's house. It was a very small community that I was helping out to start. And so we were on one side of the, of the neighborhood and, and a lot of people were on the other side. And so to be able to go up to the synagogue from where we lived, that was as far as we could go. They put the eruv tchumin like on a, um, in, you know, a place in the middle. And so, um, and they would use mustard actually. And they, we'll learn more why, but they used mustard because you have to have enough for everyone who's using that eruvet chumin of the food. And, if you, and so if you use a condiment, since the amount of condiment that you normally use is very small, so you could count the jar of mustard as like enough for everybody in the, in the whole minyan. So that's, that's one of the things that we, I learned it from that. The two things you cannot use for eruvet chumin is you can't leave like a cup of water and you can't leave salt. These are not considered mazon. Similarly, maser sheni. A person has to take maser sheni from their grain and if they don't want to lug all the grain up to Yerushalayim to eat it there, then they switch it for money. They take the money to Yerushalayim and then there they can purchase whatever kind of food they want to as it says in Parashat A in detail about what you can do with that. But you can't buy water or melach or salt because they're not considered to be mazon. They're not considered to be nourishing food. Okay? Similarly, a person who makes a neder, who makes an oath not to have mazon, he says, I'm not going to have nourishing food. He's allowed to drink water and eat salt because they're not considered nourishing food. You could put a 
bottle of wine, you got to be careful with this, but you could put a wine as an erov to the nazir, even though the nazir himself can't drink the wine, but you could leave it in the spot for the nazir. Let's say the place that he wants to leave is erov tchumin, the only thing that's around is wine. Even though he can't drink it, it's a food, so it's enough. And uli you could even put truma for a Yisrael, meaning even though the Yisrael cannot eat truma, it's food. Okay, so Sumuchus Omer Bukhulid. Sumuchus disagrees. He says it has to be something that the person's able to eat. And therefore, if, he's a, if he is a, um, if he is a, uh, a Yisrael, he's not going to be able to eat Tumah. Now, why doesn't he mention wine for a Nazir? He, apparently, he agrees wine for a Nazir is okay. Now, you can speculate why that is, but um, a good guess would be because a Nazir is a Nedir and he could do Hatarat Nidarin. Right? And, and, and get out of his Nazirut and then he'd be able to drink it. But anyway, you could even. Huh? You just put one food. One food. Now, you can also put the Erovet uh, Chumin in a Betapras. Betapras is an area where there used to be a grave and it's since been plowed over and now it's a doubt whether there are bone fragments or whatever. We've learned about it before. It's treated as a Safik of Tumatmet. It's a doubtful Tumatmet to go there and that's why you're not supposed to go there and then go to the Beta Magdash or something. You have to, or, or they would blow on the ground. Right to to blow away the dust to make sure that nobody stepped on any bones or whatever. But you could put it for the coin there because since it's only a rabbinic question of whether it's really prohibited to go there, it's only rabbinic not to go there. So we, you're allowed to. Rabbi Yehuda says you could even put the Rav Tchumein up for the Kohen in the cemetery. Why? Because he could put himself in it. He could make a partition or he, someone could carry him in a box or whatever and he could get there like the cat in the hat or something, you know, and he could get there and he would be able to, uh, he'd be able to access the food. So since he'd be able to get it, it's okay. Now the Gemara says, You should never take the word kol literally, right? Whenever it says all of something, don't take it literally. Even if it says chutz, even if it says everything except for this, there still might be more cases that are not being mentioned explicitly. Right, so it says, Since he said, since Rabbi Yochanan said, even in a place where it says chutz, even if in a place where it says all of X or Y except for this, okay, he said, don't believe it. So from the fact that he says, even in a place where it says chutz, he must not have been talking about our Mishnah, because our Mishnah does say chutz. He was talking about another Mishnah where it doesn't say chutz, and he was saying, in this case, don't take the generality too seriously. And even in a case where it says chutz, don't take it seriously. So what case was he talking about? Because he said, which means he must have been in a different subject when he said it. Where was he talking? In the Masechet Kiddushin. Okay? Where it says, Because it says, all positive mitzvot of the Torah, a man is obligated and a woman is exempt. Right? If it's time-bound, a positive mitzvah. But if it is a positive mitzvah that is no limit in time, then men and women are equal. They're all obligated. But is that really true? And that was Rabbi Yochanan's point. Don't take that too far because it's not exactly true. Because they call mitzvah, the says, is it really true that every time-bound positive mitzvah, a woman is exempt? What about the mitzvah of matzah? Mitzvah of matzah, a woman is obligated to eat matzah on the night of Pesach, for sure. And simchan, Rashi says, the mitzvah of simchan, yom tov, women are also obligated. Vehakel, gathering together, every, uh, at the end of the Shemitah, in, on Sukkot, in the conclusion of Shemitah, 
they would have something called hakel, where they gathered everyone together, and men, women, children, everyone had to come to hear the king read from the Sefer Torah. We're going to read about it soon in the, in the Torah, very soon actually, in, uh, in, in, not this week, but next week, right? The mitzvah, the Seishman Grama. Well, these are all positive time-bound mitzvot, and yet women are obligated. So it's not true, the statement, that all positive time-bound mitzvot women are exempt. And is it really true that every non-time-limited mitzvah a woman is obligated? That's also not true. Because a woman is not obligated to learn Torah, and also they're not obligated to have children, even though usually they're the ones that want to have children more than anything, but they're not obligated. Right? Maybe that's why they're not obligated, because they could be that, because it's just natural for them to have the maternal instinct, the, the father says, oh, it's more bills and... Uh, more stress and all this and the, so, so maybe it's the, he has to have the mitzvah I don't know I'm just guessing but also pidyon aben is a mitzvah that the father does for the son but actually technically it's a mitzvah for the son so if a son grows up and realizes his father never did pidyon aben and he turns 13 so then he has to do his own pidyon aben um, but, it, but there's no mitzvah on the mother to do pidyon aben um, it's a mitzvah on men only mitzvah, mitzvah, these are all positive mitzvah that have no time limit pidyon aben has a time uh, a minimum time that you have to get past thirty days, but it's not a it's not a time it's not time bound. And Talmud Torah is obviously and and having children. Huh? Brit Milah is uh, they're not obligated in Brit Milah, but a woman can do a Brit Milah. Yeah, yeah. So all of yeah, of course. Yeah, I've heard I've heard of people that, that have done. Yeah, or they find out that Kohen wasn't such a Kohen. Right, you know, benashim tuot, and also, and in all those cases, even though the mitzvah is a, um, even though mitzvah is not time bound, women could be exempt <coughs> from certain mitzvot. Anyway, so it's not el amav yochanan. That's why Rabbi Yochanan had to say in the midim in a klalot, don't take klalot. Doesn't mean with a kuf klalot, right? With a kaf, right? It means klalim. Right? We would say klalim today, but in, in Mishnei Hebrew they say they have as, as klalot. Right? They change a lot of things. But it's the same thing. Klalot means general things. But klalot with a kuf means curses. So we, you know, like bachot like and klalot. This is klalot with klalim, general rules. Right? Don't take the generalities too seriously. That's because, you see, they're not, abs- they're not absolute. Even if you have a case where the Mishnah says all of X are Y except for Z, don't think that it's the only exception. Don't think that's the only rule. It could be more. Yeah, there's always more. Right, we also learned this. They said another rule. Anything that is on the back of the zav, the zav carries it even without touching it. It will become tamei because it was held, it was supported by the zav. And anything that the zav is supported by is pure. We're saying where they don't touch the zav. The zav is tamei. If you touch it, it becomes tamei. But meaning you didn't, didn't touch, except for mishkav moshav, unless it is a seat or a bed. Or v'hadam, or a person carries him. Anything else that he goes on, let's say he uh, stands on a, uh, I don't know, on a box, or he stands on other kelim. They, they won't become tamei just from uh, him st- from supporting his weight. Okay? Oh, it has to be what? It has to be either mishkav, something made for lying down, something made for sitting, or a person. Yeah. Now, v'tu leka is that true? Va'ika mirkav. What about riding? It also says, v'cholam mirkav asher yirkav alav azav yitma. Right? If he rides on a horse. By the saddle. So, exactly what you said. If it's a, if he sits on it, it's like a seat, right? Right. Anan This is what we meant, right? What about the gabad uchpa? Is like the reins that he holds, that he leans on, the, he, because he leans his weight on it somewhat. That what he holds uh, in the saddle when it when it's on the yeah. So it says, 
Right? And so it says the ukaf, the saddle that he sits on, is tamei from sitting. Vatafus tamei merkav, and the the thing that he holds and he leans on tafus because he holds onto it, right? That is tamei as as riding, right? So that's a case where so you see that it didn't mention it before. There's an exception because it said nothing will become tamei from supporting the weight of the zav unless it's a seat or it's a person. But what about the reins of the horse that he leans forward so onto the? <clears throat> it's not reins, but it's like the piece in the front that he leans on, that he holds on. That also, even though he's not sitting on it. So why it's so there's an exception. So you see, you can't learn, you can't generalize. And we said in our Mishnah that you can use anything for eruvet chomin, even anything except for water and salt. Is there nothing else? What about truffles and mushrooms? They are not considered, they're things that grow from the air. They don't grow from the ground. They don't have roots, right? So you're also not allowed to use those. So you see that even when it says chutz, there are more things that you're not allowed to use for Eruvet uh, Chumin because you're not allowed to also use mushrooms because they're not, they don't grow from the ground and they're not really, they don't have the same status as food. They're not a pre, right? They're not a pre. They're not a, they're not a fruit. And, um, and, and so you see that there are more exceptions than what are actually written in the Mishnah, even though the Mishnah says all cases, chutz, except for this, still we don't take it literally and we say that it means uh, it, there's, there's more exceptions. Yeah.